Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment of both the surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. We touched on some quote-unquote taboo subjects today on the podcast, money and religion. Dr. Jeff Way is a trauma and general surgeon in Calgary. We asked Dr. Way about his interest in spirituality and how that affected his career, both inside and outside the operating room. We also got his thoughts on managing a very, very busy surgical practice, as well as his work on a provincial and national level with the government on healthcare and on physician billing. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where you did your training? I uh, grew up in uh, Newfoundland, uh, born and raised in St. John's. Uh, I went to medical school there, uh, graduated in 1980, uh, following which I did a rotating internship and then uh, did my surgical residency uh, from which I graduated in 1986. Uh, following that, I went to Winnipeg for two years where I did uh, ICU and trauma. And subsequent to that, uh, I moved to Calgary in 1988, uh, where I've now just entered my 35th year of practice. What took you to Calgary from, from Winnipeg at that time? Chad, I was uh, finishing up there and, and wondering what I was going to do. And uh, I was actually uh, looking at going to uh, Belfast. Uh, the, it was still uh, uh, in a time of uh, great conflict in Northern Ireland at that time. And being from Newfoundland, I was kind of connected. And I was going to go to Belfast for a fellowship and more trauma. When I saw an ad in the uh, CMAJ uh, for a surgeon to come to Calgary to uh, start up a level two trauma center at the Rocky View uh, General Hospital. And uh, I applied for that and, uh, came, and uh, came here and the uh, rest is history. And we started the level two trauma at the Rocky View at that time. And then subsequently with the changes in Calgary and the amalgamation of the uh, programs, uh, as you know, trauma all ended up uh, being uh, concentrated at the Foothills Hospital, of which I was, uh, have been a part of that trauma program for many years. Yeah, I was, you know, I was hoping the the history of trauma in Calgary in particular would would come up. So I'm I'm so glad you you brought it up. What what were those early days like? I mean, you were a, a fixture in the trauma service here until until essentially last year. You know, I would guess that's 25 or 30 years. How did you see the evolution of of injury care in Calgary and in the country in particular? Yeah, in in those days, everything uh, went to the uh, to the nearest hospital basically, and. Uh, Unless we had, so the Rockview basically did everything from the south end of town and all the highway injuries uh, that came in. Uh, there was no uh, coordinated effort whatsoever. Uh, when I first came here, I was uh, a new young uh, trauma surgeon. And uh, I got the, uh, you know, I, we had a, I remember one young uh, boy who had a head injury and a ruptured spleen. And I had a neurosurgeon come from the Calgary General at those days come and we uh, uh, cracked the skull and I, where I did the spleen all at the same time at the Rocky View. We, shortly after that, we then amalgamated with the Holy Cross Hospital. And so those of us at the Rocky View also went to the Holy. So we dealt with all the stampede injuries. I remember looking after a guy with stomped on by a bull uh, down there, but, uh, his liver was just smashed, and 
the uh, it was there was no coordinated effort at all. It just went to the, the closest place. Subsequent to that, it uh, all amalgamated to the Calgary General and the Foothills. And then with the uh, time where we sold the Holy and blew up the General, uh, all the uh, trauma was then uh, uh, went to the Foothills. And uh, shortly after, I then joined the uh, uh, program at the Foothills Hospital. Yeah, the, it's an interesting. The, the history of trauma care in any given city across the country uh, uh, is always unique and it's, it's always interesting. And the, the culture and the politics and the government and how those things kind of intersect. And I, I think we'll come back to that theme um, in terms of physician services in a little bit here. The next thing that we wanted to explore, you know, you're known as a really deep thinker in Calgary and you got lots going on in a lot of different domains. And one of the things that that intrigues a lot of us is the graduate work you did in. And forgive me if I'm if I'm uh, um, mismonitoring it, but in religious studies, Can you tell us about what that voyage was like, what triggered you to do that, especially at that time point in your career and and, and maybe how it informs your your practice and how it changed you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, uh, Chad. I was uh, away at a, at a nephew's wedding this uh, two weeks ago in uh, Camrose, Alberta. And uh, when I was checking out of my hotel, uh, there was some family in the area just sitting down, and uh, I heard, heard them talking about their little girl who was uh, five years old and said she wanted to be a doctor. And, um, and they were just kind of, you know, kind of making fun of her in a little way. And... Uh, when I finished checking out, I just went over to these people and said, hi. I said, I just heard you talking about your daughter. And they kind of looked at me, who's this guy? And I said, you know, my name is Dr. Way. I'm a surgeon in Calgary. And I said, if you were to ask my mother, she will tell you that when I was five years old, I was going to be a doctor. That's what I was going to do. And I said, so uh, don't belittle your daughter who wants to do that. Uh, someday she may be. And... Uh, uh, Another story, I had a patient who I did his hernia. And uh, post-op, uh, when he came for his check, he said, uh, he said, Dr. Way, he said, you know, uh, you don't know me, but, you know, we just did, you just did my hernia. But they said, my daughter is in high school, and she wants to be a surgeon. And uh, he says, is there any way you can get her into the operating room? So I thought, you know, I'm going to jump some hoops here. And uh, I did that. I got her into the operating room and a few years ago, he showed up at the office and said, you know, my daughter just graduated medical school at the U of A. And he just wanted to thank me for getting her into the operating room all those many years ago. Anyway, I was always going to be a doctor and my family always thought I was going to follow in the steps of Sir Wilfred Grenfell, who uh, started the mission. Uh, he was a mission doctor up in the Northern Newfoundland and Labrador. And he's well written about, known about, for his work. And uh, everybody thought I was going to follow that route. However, I did not. I uh, followed the route of went through and went did surgery first and uh, then on and became a practice. But this was still always lingering in the background. So a number of years ago, I started online and the online and the internet helped with this, that I did my, uh, I started out to do a master's in divinity and uh, I was almost finished it. I had three courses left, which were Hebrew, Greek, and preaching. And I thought, you know, I don't really need this. The Hebrew, boy, it was tough. I started the course and it was tough. And uh, so anyway, they had come up with another program called the uh, 
master's in Christian studies, which basically I had already completed all the prerequisites. And I, so I just switched over to that program. And uh, so I just uh, had accomplished a lifelong goal and uh, it was very uh, worthwhile. What was your particular thesis or area that you studied and, and did it um, in any way inform or change the way that you practice? You know, it was, uh, Chad, it, it did a lot, actually. Um, you know, we did ethics, and I, I had to do a paper on ethics. And, and I did this, you know, we use biologic mesh on people, and we never discuss with them what the mesh is made of. And uh, so I went to about 28 different religious groups and talked to them about the, the mesh and, you know, porcelain and, and whatnot. And, um, and except for one group who would not even, uh, you know, had, would not do anything, everyone else, even though they won't eat meat, if you're going to uh, put this in to save their lives, it's okay. And that was very interesting. And, and, uh, over the years, since I've had to use biologic mesh, I've always made sure to have that discussion with people about that. And uh, so that was one thing I learned. The other was cross-cultural. You know, we did a lot of work in missions. And as you know, I've, I've traveled the world and done work with Samaritan's Purse in, uh, in many, er many countries and areas. And, you know, I was in one country and... Uh, it was a conflict zone and we were seen with a lot of suspicion. And after we were there for a week or so, uh, they started to accept us. And, and, uh, and we, um, I remember one of the uh, people brought, one of the political people brought me their daughter who was uh, having some, some concerns and I thought she was anemic. And so we didn't have access to blood tests or anything. So I was looking at her eyes and I was opening her hand up to look at the creases to see if, if she was, in, see if she was anemic or not. They thought I was a witch doctor for looking at her hands like that. So you have to be just a little tuned in to things. Uh, we had another young girl, she was seven or eight years old, who got fragged by an IED and the entry wounds were in her flank and had exited to the uh, perineum and she had blood coming from all the orifices. We were examining her and again, even some of her own people were questioning us about some of the uh, appropriateness of what we were doing. So we just had to adapt and, and uh, learn to treat these people and still do what we needed to do, but just learn to do it differently. And, and that was, was really brought out in uh, the cross-cultural studies we did and, and mission work that we did. It was uh, uh, very interesting to, to look at those things. Um, the other big one was uh, wellness and uh, looking after each other. And, you know, I don't think we do enough of that as surgeons. We don't help each other. We don't look after each other because uh, uh, we can go through some tough times. And uh, we, I think we need to be there for each other more. And then of course, spirituality. And no matter whether you believe in God or not, or whether you're spiritual or not, most people at some level have a degree of spirituality. And if you look at the blue zones in the world where people have longevity. One of those uh, issues there, or one of the things that have been identified is a level of spirituality or belief in some, something higher. And so it's, uh, I learned a lot. Curious, do you ever feel kind of embarrassed to talk about this with other surgical colleagues or do you ever feel like a little bit, because you know, religion and politics, there's not things typically Canadians talk about, certainly not things that we talk about in the operating room or it does some, my sense is that it does make people people feel uncomfortable. So did you ever feel kind of 
embarrassed or not ashamed. That's not at all the word I would use, but did you ever feel like this isn't something I can tell the rest of my colleagues? I, I think early on that would be uh, correct. I think that's one of the reasons why I didn't uh, follow that route early on. But as you, as you get older, I think you become a little more confident in, in yourself. And uh, I went on and, and did this. And uh, uh, so, so that now, no, I don't feel that at all. I mean, and, you know, you'll see patients and patients will uh, often be wearing a cross or they, or they will, you know, you can, you, other signs of their re religious affiliation. And you know, you're able to, to talk to them about that and, and say, you know, particularly when, let's face it, we give some people some uh, very bad news and uh, very bad uh, prognosis and, and bad diagnoses. And uh, it's helpful to be able to talk to them about that. And uh, I'll often ask people, you know, do you have someone, uh, is there anything I can do? Uh, would you, uh, you know, some people will ask me, they will say, and they've, you know, they've, they've looked, they've looked nowadays, they look you up on the internet. So they know what you do and where you've been. And they'll ask, uh, often ask me to pray for them. And uh, yeah, I can do that. And uh, uh, they, they feel very uh, comfortable. You know, uh, one of the things that related to is talking about this idea of sort of spirituality and how that interfaces with your own practice of surgery and how you deal with complications and perhaps even how you relate to your patients' complications and or how you help your patients deal with their, their tough situations. And I'm, yeah. I'm curious if you're comfortable sharing this with us. Yeah. How has your own spirituality impacted your the way that you practice surgery? Is it some is it a big part of your life? Do you have any spiritual practices that you do every day? If you're comfortable sharing that with us, that would be amazing. Absolutely, I I think it gives us hope. Um, I'll, I'll, so yes, I do. I, I go to a men's Bible study uh, every week during the year on Thursday nights. Uh, uh, a lot of guys look to me for uh, help about things. Uh, we, um, you know, I, when I was in the middle of my residency, I, I found a little lump in my leg and, uh, it was, uh, I, it was taken out and it was, I watched Terry Fox run across, leave St. John's run across, uh, Newfoundland. It was only a couple of years after that. And it, the initial diagnosis on that was a sarcoma. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, you had to have hope. You had to have belief. Um, anyway, 10 years later, I was here in Calgary and, uh, but, and I got married and I was looking to get life insurance and I had this diagnosis and, you know, it just wasn't making sense. I had the slides sent out and I had to reread and it turned out it was, it was a nodular fasciitis. And, uh, but for 10 years, I lived with a diagnosis, diagnosis of a sarcoma. And my hope and my belief had got me through that time. And uh, so over the years, when I've you know, given people di diagnoses, I say, I understand how you feel. I, I truly do. And people need hope. People need to have something to believe in. Um, you know, I was in a, I was in another country and, uh, I, uh, we, again, uh, they, they brought us an infant who was probably about 12 or 14 months old. And this infant was 
totally limp. It was not breathing. I could not hear any heart sounds. It was gray. And believe me, I inflicted significant pain on this infant in order to try and arouse it. And there was nothing. I mean, there was nothing. And to me, this child was just done, which we were a little concerned about because we were in a pretty precarious situation. And, uh, you know, we had a, a pastor there with us who uh, prayed over this child and the child just kind of woke up. I was kind of amazed at that. What really happened, I don't know, but to me, there was no life in this child. And unless I'd been there and saw it for myself, I would have a hard time believing that story. Uh, so, you know, spirituality is important. It's important to a lot of people and uh, people need hope. And uh, that's all we can give them sometimes is hope. That's a powerful topic and a, a powerful anecdote. And, you know, I think we could talk to you for hours and some of us have about your, your trips around the world and particularly in places like Iraq and some of the, the experiences you had there. But we also wanted to switch gears a little bit here and, and bring it closer to home. And, you know, for the listeners who don't know you as well as we do, uh, I'm convinced you must run the busiest, if not one of the busiest general surgical clinics and offices in Western Canada. Um, the efficiency and the volume that you see is, is unmatched, at least in, in, in my observations and travels. I'm curious, what, what are your philosophies that surround your clinic uh, business or experience? And, and what prompted you to, to go uh, in that direction, you know, out of the gate and then, and then build that business? Because it's, it's something that um, I, I don't think is necessarily unique, of course, but um, it's certainly at a volume and an efficiency level that we just don't commonly see elsewhere. You know, Chad, when I came to Calgary uh, at the Rockview, uh, there were four other surgeons there. Everybody had their own office. And that's just the way it was. You were an independent uh, community practitioner. So I came here. I, uh, I found a place to rent for an office space. I sat on the floor. First thing I did was have to get a phone. So I got a phone, which I plugged in in those days. And then I had a phone book. And I started phoning around to find uh, uh, furniture and, uh, okay, I need this. I need a typewriter. You know, I need a desk. You need paper. You need, you need things. And I just kind of thought what I need. But we don't learn. We didn't learn this stuff in surgery school. You didn't learn this anywhere. I, I did read the often uh, occasional articles about the running a practice and what to do and how to set it up. And, and I read those things. And, but you had to set it up on your own. And then I just kind of looked around at the people who were in practice and just uh, learned from them. And they had busy practices. And we did, uh, people had a full service uh, community office. And they, and they did home where I trained as well. And people did lumps and bumps in their offices and, and saw patients. And uh, so I just uh, built an office, uh, worked hard. And, you know, I always say the three, the three A's of, of practice are availability, affability, and ability and uh, working hard and, and uh, being available. Uh, the guys in Emerge knew, oh, we can call Jeff. And, and there was the call schedules weren't like they are now. Uh, you, they would just call, they would, uh, GPs would send you uh, patients from their office who had belly pain. And every office in those days had a lab and an x-ray down the hall. And so you would see a patient with belly pain, you would order some blood work, get 
in those days, three views of the abdomen, you had a chest x-ray, look at them while they have appendicitis, you'd make that diagnosis in your office, and then you would book them for surgery that night. And after you finished your office, you'd go over and do the appendix. And um, it was just different. And uh, so you, by being available and working hard, uh, the other thing I often said was that uh, surgery is just a uh, 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration because we work hard. Every one of us work very hard and not just in surgery specialties and many specialties, but a lot of what we do is just hard work. I, I'm curious, you know, again, to take the listeners, you have, you have multiple partners in your clinic. You have a relatively large staff. Um, your patients absolutely love you from start to finish in their interactions with you. But in spite of all of that sunshine, there, there has to be some challenges that go along with running a business like that, uh, running, a, running a clinic like that. Now, I'm curious what some of those um, challenges are for you and, and how, you, how you deal with them. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, uh, Chad. And I, I kind of told you about starting it out. You know, you, I was by myself. Like, you just uh, it was an empty office space with just sitting on the floor. Uh, you know, that just doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but there are no doubt the uh, challenges are staffing. And you're right. We have a big staff. I have three examining rooms, and I have uh, three nurses uh, manning those rooms at all times. So, you know, they do everything else. I just come in and do the doctor thing. So that, and they've worked with, uh, with me for a very long time. So they know things They come in and say, oh, here's what's going on here. They'll get the dressings off the wounds. They'll look at it all and they'll come out and tell me what's going on. And, uh, uh, you know, so we, we, it's very efficient. I, I'm able to just do what I need to do and they look after everything else. In addition to that, we have a big front office staff. We have an office manager who sort of oversees the whole works. I also have a, a nurse manager who oversees the nurses and does all our surgical bookings. And then, of course, we have our reception staff. And uh, it's built, there's no doubt it's built on volume. Uh, in our fee-for-service environment, it's uh, running a community practice. It's certainly built on volume. But, you know, the, the other thing is, is, is just a... You know, I, we just, we're there to help. And uh, people know they can call us. You know, if I'm in the office, we tell people, just call, come in, we'll see you. And uh, my staff know that. And um, they, and people just show up and you don't have the book for a month out. We just, uh, we're just there. And, you know, just uh, on that note as well, you, you've heard me say as a, when you were a resident, you know, we show up and emerge, we're called. You know, so many of our colleagues will, will call them for a consult and say, oh, you know, what do you need this for? You know, I've always said, you just show up and emerge. You say, hi, we're from surgery. How can we help? And uh, just show up and do your job and everything, everything else falls into place. And that's similarly out in practice. Just be there. GPs see you. you oh, some of the consults you'll look at, but they don't know. They're, they're calling and asking for your help. So just see the patient's. And again, that's where you become available and affable and you build a big practice and it gets busy. Well, one of the things I, I worry, it's a bit tangential, but one of the things I worry about with central triage that certainly exists in a lot of cities, and as you know, is coming to Alberta in a very big way and is already in the Edmonton region, um, is the loss of that personal connection. You know, the, the referring physician sends off the facts through, you know, electronically or old school facts, and it's sort of uh, divvied out, but really no one's 
no one's married to that patient out of the gate and that ability to say, yep, send them over. I'll see them right now. How can I help? It seems to be potentially lost. What, what are your thoughts about that new model that seems to be permeating sort of practice across the country? Yeah, Chad, you're absolutely correct. Uh, there are going to be some challenges uh, and concerns about that. But, you know, we kind of emulate that in our trauma service. And we have been very fortunate in our trauma service in Calgary. We are the Southern Alberta Trauma Referral Center. It's kind of like a central triage. No matter where you are in Alberta, you call the, the, the 1-800 number and um, rapid line, and you are sent to either Edmonton or Calgary, and we just see it all. You show up, we have, you know, over the years had eight uh, people doing trauma, and we are kind of like a central triage. We've been very fortunate that we've had uh, eight people who uh, work together. And when we take over trauma, you just take over, you look after the patients, and we've all done that. And uh, that says a lot for the development of the trauma uh, in this city and uh, the people who've done that. Uh, and I think that if people could emulate that, we would be well, uh, well done. Uh, that's not the case in all services. Uh, the level of commitment is not there, uh, but we have had it on trauma. We've done very well. So if people could emulate that, it would be good. Yeah, it's a, it's a privilege to do that for sure. Well, one of the other areas we wanted to explore with you is, you know, you've been deeply involved on the physician. And I may use some incorrect terminology here, and I, I apologize if I do, but on the physician side of uh, a longstanding um, discussion and committee work with um, government, in particular, not only in how physicians are paid, uh, how they're remunerated, whether that's fee for service or uh, you know alternate plans or straight salary, um, but also in addition to the the money side of it, into the delivery of care models that are both coming and and have uh, occurred over many years. I'm curious if you could frame your work for us. And then give us a sense of, of where we've come from and where we're going. Yeah, uh, thanks, Chad. And, you know, I, uh, when I first started the practice in Calgary, again, I was a community uh, physician. I was not uh, part of the university. And I was doing all the lumps and bumps in my office. We get this little tray fee. And, you know, the tray fee just didn't cover the costs of the supplies and equipment. So, again, you're, you're built on volume. And, uh, you know, rather... I used to go to the Myers Surgery Clinic at the hospital and, and continue to do so. But I could uh, do the same number of procedures in my, in my office and at the same time, I see other patients. And so it was uh, uh, economically better to do that. Um, I figured out that if you hire staff, uh, it allows you to do more. You may need to see three or four more people to pay for that staff. But when you see number five and number six, that's a... Uh, now that's uh, money in your pocket. And I, I figured out that business model. In any case, I, uh, I, I hired my own research assistant uh, back in the mid-90s and early 90s, I guess. And I, uh, I published a couple of papers, but one of them was on the cost analysis of doing uh, procedures in your office. And that was uh, published in the Canadian Journal of Surgery. Um, that obtained... Um, uh, interest from the government, and I ended up with a meeting with the uh, Deputy Minister of Health over that. And uh, subsequently, the AMA, Alberta Medical Association, uh, 
heard about this and I was uh, asked to uh, uh, become involved with them more. Uh, although I was always a member right from the day I arrived in Calgary, I eventually then uh, was nominated to the board. I was on the AMA board in the mid nineties. And after that, uh, and since then I've sat on uh, fees committees, chaired the fees, uh, scheduled med medical benefits committee. And I currently uh, co-chair the uh, AMA compensation committee. And, and I'm also one of the two uh, uh, physician representatives on the uh, physician compensation advisory committee of the Alberta health. Um, so it's a lot of meetings and a lot of discussion around physician compensation. And every time I have the residents, I ask them, how do you see yourself getting paid, you know, when you're finished? They all kind of look at me and they all think that they're just going to show up somewhere, kind of get paid like the resident as they do as a resident. They're just going to show up, get paid, go home. And the, um, concept of fee for service is really foreign to them. And, and, you know, again, we, in our training programs, we really don't teach people about the economics of, of medicine and, and surgery and, and how you're going to get paid and how this works and the bit and business 101 of running an office and what's involved of, you know, having to find out getting a billing program and, and all of these things. We don't teach our, we don't teach our residents this. So it's a huge learning curve. And what I find now is they don't want to come out on the treadmill of piecemeal work, piecemeal work of, of fee-for-service. They want something else. And, um, you you know, it's in the news lots right now with the premier's meeting, uh, healthcare, we see it. We all see it very well. We see healthcare imploding and crumbling around us. And uh, we've been saying this for years. But it is, it is really coming down to that. Practices uh, are not viable. I, you know, because of my work, I hear from a lot of physicians. Uh, family doctors have to close practice. They can't make a go of it uh, financially. Uh, it's, there are some real challenges out there right now. And um, some of the areas that uh, I think we're going to need to, uh, to look at are, you know, are we going to need to look at the uh, CPT or the current procedural terminology as used by the uh, American Medical Association? I mean, it's a fee schedule that's used nationwide and has modifiers to geographic locations and different things. And is that something that we need to look at? Uh, I mean, uh, we, we do explore these things uh, at the AMA. We've uh, uh, talked to them, but no decisions are made. It's just all looking at this. Um, do we need to have a different model altogether? Do we need to uh, be on, is it stipends we need to be on? Do we need to be on a salary? How do we look at that? How do we then uh, protect uh, us as ourselves as employees if, if we were to go that route? On call issues, uh, it's a, another problem. You know, people are on call all night long. Uh, you may or may not have much work, but then you're not working the next day and yet you still have your overhead. Uh, we're facing challenges, as you know, with uh, codes and uh, decreased rates for working in the hospital while yet you still have an office and, and have uh, overhead back, back at another site. Uh, th these are challenges. And um, we are trying to, you know, educate people and let them know that it's, it's not simple. Uh, one uh, form of payment is not going to uh, fit all. 
and uh, we're going to have to explore new ideas. Uh, on call at night, should we be paying people uh, to be there, be available, show up? Uh, you know, um, one of the areas, uh, you know, a few years ago, as you know, there were some concerns about call issues in uh, Alberta and the, the college were going around and uh, phoning everybody at Christmas time to see if you had a message on your machine about how to reach someone. And, uh, you know, the question is, is there is somebody on call for every service. That person just needs to show up and see the patient. And uh, as you know, we'll see people, you know, who had some huge operation at another hospital we got discharged that morning and show up at a different hospital at night. We kind of shake our heads about that, but we still just need to show up and see them and not worry about that. The patient doesn't care. They just want to be seen. We'll sort out any acute problem and then we can figure out where they go later. But again, uh, th this has funding issues and um, people need to, we're going to have to look at it differently. And I, you know, there are lots of options out there, but it's hard to get consensus at this point. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt. You know, it's interesting having spent, as you know, a fair bit of time in the U.S. and a very different practice model. Um, you know, there is obviously pros, some pros to being a straight salary system, particularly from building programs uh, and and longer term vision and and uh, moving resources around a little differently. There's also clear benefits to fee-for-service um, and the history of, of that in many regions as well. It's interesting to me that you, you commented that maybe some of the recent graduates are not interested in the fee-for-service treadmill. What's your sense, uh, being so deeply involved in this, of, of what they want? Like, from a purely structural point of view, where do you think this ends up? Uh, that, that's a very good question, Chad, and I, I don't, there is no clear answer. Uh, at, at the end of the end of the day, in our current system in Canada, uh, the taxpayer is who funds us, and all governments are strapped for for dollars right now. And uh, this isn't just in in medicine; this is in nursing as well. And they're going to want maximum uh, work for the least amount of uh, pay, and um, that's uh, that's reality. And um, so how do you how do you deal with that? And uh, the fee for service model right now, in terms of the uh, challenges we have with overhead, uh, you look at inflation; uh, it's very difficult. And uh, is the model going to be where everybody works in a in a based out of or specialists in particular based out of a hospital? Uh, you know uh, where overhead is a you know, probably less than uh, it is in community practice uh, is is going to be challenging. Uh, at the same time, you're looking at the fee-for-service treadmill promotes volume. And um, uh, that can be a good thing. And in some instances, we know that can also not be a good thing because uh, you also got to have quality that goes with that. It's not just volume, it's also got to be quality. And uh, so there are some real challenges. And uh, the, the answer is not there right now. Uh, but uh, we're, we have to start looking at different payment models. And uh, we have to do that as a profession. And we have to work together uh, uh, with uh, our association and the government. And uh, we need to be forward thinking about this. And um, 
I, I think that the uh, historic treadmill of fee-for-service is, is not going to work for everything. Still has some roles in certain areas. There's uh, no doubt about that. But in many areas, we need to rethink some of this. And um, that's very difficult to get everybody there together. And, you know, uh, you, you look at Alberta here right now, and we have some challenges. Uh, we do not have an agreement with the government. And, uh, you know, we hear, if, you know, groups wanting to move out on their own. And I think that would be unwise. I think there are strength in us in our association. And I'll just put a plug in for, the, for your provincial associations right now and to be members and to work with your association. I think that that's our strength. I'm curious, you know, when you're in those high-level meetings with government officials, whether they're appointed or elected, and you're trying to communicate the reality, and I mean this in the, in the best possible way that you and I live in, but reality is from the trench, um, whether that's uh, service coverage, delivery of care, or financially, what are your strategies? Like, how do you communicate that to somebody who may or may not be um, a savvy in terms of the real world rubber meeting the road sort of scenario? Well, they, they certainly, they certainly hear from us uh, about issues. And, but at the end of the day, Chad, you, you know, this uh, from your re research, it's, it's a lot of it is going to be data driven. And so this again is why it's very important to be, uh, with our associations and gather our information. And then we can uh, show, uh, show where our concerns are. We can show how our compensation compares. And, um, and that's very important. Uh, that said, um, they, they hear loud and clear about issues facing uh, physicians right now. And um, uh, although most of my work is about uh, the people I work with, it's all about our fees and how we're compensated. Uh, that said, we do look at the bigger, uh, bigger picture. Uh, and uh, there are some uh, people there who really do know and understand the situation across the country. And uh, it's uh, just trying to mobilize uh, people to uh, all come and try to think outside the box and uh, look at different ways of doing things. Uh, but that's difficult particularly in the current environment. We always ask our, our guests as a, as a closer, and we'd love to get your thoughts. If you were to go back and ask yourself a question or maybe give yourself a piece of advice uh, when you were a trainee or maybe just starting out in practice, what, what would you tell yourself? You know, Chad, you know this. I love what I do. I've always loved what I do. And uh, I would do it all again. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I worked hard as many as many of us have. We showed up, we were there, and you know, you, your time in your training, you get you get to see, spend as much time as you possibly can, seeing as much as you can. Because the day you finish, you're out on your own. I did a locum. I did a locum up in uh, Labrador City, first place I worked on my own. And there was nobody else to ask anything. It was just me. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you've got to uh, spend as much time learning as you possibly can. Be in the operating room, be with people, see everything you can, learn as much as you can, work hard, show up, and do your job. 
And that's what we're there for. And people depend upon us and uh, we need to be there for them. And, you know, it's a privilege to do what we do. We get to see people uh, at a point in their lives that nobody else does. And they come in and they, they, I've always found it amazing. You walk into an emergency department, you meet somebody who you've never met before. And in uh, 30 seconds, you tell them that you're going to take them or their loved one into the operating room. You're going to open them up and you're going to fix the problem. And they just look at you and they say, thank you, doctor. And they put 100% of their trust of, of themselves and their loved one in you. Who else does that? Who else is privileged to have that? And uh, we, uh, it's a great privilege to do what we do. And it's our job to look after people. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.